Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. Uh, As we do every so often, we try to find people who've written important new books and have important new things to say, and we have done that again by... Uh, being able to persuade Pulitzer Prize-winning author Dan Jurgen to join us. He is the author of a new book called The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Hi, Dan. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you, David, and glad to be with you today. Uh, Well, it's great to have you with us. Um, As you may know, uh, the people who follow our podcast are specialists in foreign policy and national security, or they're at least uh, deeply interested in these things. And uh, my view is that, you know, all of them need to be reading this book because it talks about the shifting uh, sort of plate tectonics of geopolitics with a particular uh, eye towards uh, uh, how energy and climate politics are affecting this. Uh, One of the things that struck me was, of course, many of them know you uh, for a long, long time, for your, for your many great books, beginning with The Prize, which is kind of the, the definitive book on, 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 on the oil industry. Um, and I, when did The Prize come out? Uh, it came out uh, very end of 1990, really 1991 the publication date. Right. So it was, the, it was 30 years ago. You look unchanged, by the way. But um, I was struck in reading this about how much had changed since then. And I, I, you know, I, I, you know, we know each other a bit and I, I kind of intuited that, that one of the reasons that you wrote this book is, is, is your awareness of how much had changed since then. And I, was, I thought that'd be a good place to start. What do you think are the big things that distinguish the world of the prize from the world of the new map? You know, if I go back 30 years, I mean, so a lot has changed. Even if we go back five or six years, David, a lot has changed. But in 30 years ago, uh, energy security was front and center. Uh, There was no thought that anything would replace oil. Uh, Climate wasn't on the agenda. And uh, it was just uh, the Cold War was just kind of ending and the Soviet Union was falling apart. Uh, And it's interesting to me when I look back at the prize, China hardly figured in it, uh, hardly figured in it because China was really, I mean, it was exporting a few barrels of oil to Japan, but it wasn't part of the international system. And, you know, so there's no Soviet Union, but there is uh, China as the uh, G2 with the United States. That's a big change. And of course, climate policy just was not on the agenda in the way it is very much on the agenda today. 
Yeah, and also, I mean, you know, technologies have changed in ways that were hard to anticipate. In fact, one of the things that strikes me over the course of that 30 years, sometimes looking closely at energy issues, is how often the experts get it wrong. Uh, and of course, this book begins with that to, to, to some extent, which uh, because you talk about the rise of um, shale gas and oil in the United States and, and um, the, the, the surprise, you know, kind of reshuffling of, of, of global energy that came as a result of the success of these new technologies. Yeah, I mean, just to, to pick up on that, you know, when I wrote the prize, the notion that the US could somehow become the world's largest oil producer, that the US would become not import oil anymore on a net basis, uh, that just didn't seem possible. And yet that's one of the big changes and shale wasn't anticipated. Uh, I would tell you when I wrote the, the prize or even, uh, even the more recent book, uh, The Quest, the notion that the electric car, which had seemed to have gone away with Thomas Edison, could come back and be the dominant strategy for our automobile makers would not have seemed uh, likely either. And the other big change to, the, to me, and it gets very much to David themes that you're interested in, your last listeners are in, interested in. Um, I know you, you've written a book about the National Security Council. If you go back, and look at the last national uh, security strategy of the Obama administration. It talks about what a great partner China is, uh, convergent interests and everything. And then you look at the first uh, national strategic uh, document from the Biden administration, it says China is our main competitor, trying to overturn the international order. And it's the same people, but six years later, what a change. Yeah, although I might argue that both are true. Um, and, and, you know, it's, they've, 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 the, the, the reality is they're, they're, I think, emphasizing different aspects of the world. I think, well, I think you're, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's, I mean, the Cold War with the Soviet Union, we had no convergent interests except avoiding the nuclear war. Uh, but as you say here, you know, one of the two biggest owners of U.S. Treasury debt is China. Right. And you talk in the book about the G2 and the, the you know, the, the importance of, you know, this relationship, you know, sort of at the center of all, all discussions. But, you know, I, I, one of the things I particularly liked about the book, and, you know, it starts with calling it the new map, but you, you know, you talk about the Russia map or the China map, the, you know, you talk about the changing map of the world as a result of all this. I'm a kind of, uh, 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 you know, casual collector of maps. My house is de decorated with maps, but the maps that I try to collect are ones that have errors in them. Um, so I try to go back, you know, hundreds of years and, you know, California is an island or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They say, you know, cannibals live here. Um, and, and that's because maps always are a reflection of the perception of one moment um, and they change. Uh, and, you know, you know, you, you take your Russia map or your China map, it wouldn't have looked the same 10 years ago, would it? No, I think, and of course, when I use map, I mean, there's a literal sense like the Belt and Road or the South China Sea map, but of course it's metaphorical maps. 
and the geopolitical maps in a sense. And you know, one big difference you mentioned Russia, China, is in fact uh, uh, how those two countries have really come together, uh, not in an alliance, but uh, geo their geopolitical alignment uh, against an international order that they see uh, run by the United States has become more and more clear. Uh, but you do make me think about mistakes in maps or how, how maps change. I mean, obviously I said the idea of maps is metaphorical, although it's also very literal. But one of the things that got me to think about this whole theme and organizing the book uh, was looking at how the map of US energy had changed from all this oil coming into our shores and the directions of pipelines changing, the shale developed. So, uh, you know, I guess you could say maps have mistakes in them and uh, be sometimes very interested what, you know, what your favorite mistakes are in maps, but it's also that maps change. Right, and you know, when you do your energy map, you know, now you look at the Marcellus or the Bakken or the different, you know, big oil fields that we couldn't reach before. And now that we can reach them, um, now that we have the technology to, to draw out the gas or the um, oil out of them, uh, uh, we look at those parts of the country differently. I mean, you, you describe changes in North Dakota or changes in Texas that no one predicted, but some of the, plus some of the places that have gone through booms were completely written off. Well, and, and North Dakota, you know, Venezuela has actually the largest oil reserves in the world. North Dakota produces considerably more oil today than Venezuela. You know, 15 years ago, unimaginable. I think the other thing, David, that's, you know, that's not taken, you know, is how the interaction of the change in the energy position of the United States ties into the role of the US in the world. The other day I was in a conversation with a, you know, kind of call it a moderate Democrat. And he said, you know, we need to back away from the Carter Doctrine about the Middle East and resize our commitment to the Middle East. And I thought you would not be saying that if the United States was still, as it was in 2008, importing 60% of your oil. It just, you couldn't have done that. And so I think to some degree, people don't take into account the political, geopolitical significance of uh, this change in the position of the United States. Yeah, but, and some of those people are, are foreign leaders. I mean, I, you know, I think, you know, you know, the Israelis are, are mystified at changing views in the US and so are the Saudis and, you know, others in the Gulf. And, and yet it ties to this as, you know, I mean, it ties to the end of the Cold War, it ties to the end of the war on terrorism, but more than anything else, it ties to this because the geopolitical significance of the Middle East isn't what it used to be. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, the Abraham Accords, the peace treaty between the UAE and Israel, I mean, there's several reasons for it. But one big reason, I think, is the sense that the role of the US uh, is in recessional from the Middle East and countries need to, you know, kind of work together for their security in the future. And that's, I think, one consequence of this. The other example that I have in the book, I don't use I made the decision, which may not have been a good decision, not to use the first person in the book. But there's a scene in which um, Vladimir Putin starts shouting at me. 
and that was at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, I was asked uh, to ask the first question of him. He was up there with Merkel. And so I asked the question that you could ask today, what are you doing about diversifying your economy? But I started, somehow I mentioned shale, and he just started shouting at me in front of 3,000 people, not fun. Um, I remember sort of sinking back into my seat. But the reason is because he saw shale, U.S. shale, meaning the U.S. could compete with Russian gas in Europe. And he saw what had happened with shale as an adjunct to U.S. foreign policy, giving the U.S. an advantage in the world that it hadn't had before. And shifting Russia's role. I mean, it just makes Russia less relevant. I mean, you know, Russia was relevant as superpower. That's not there anymore. Uh, It then became relevant as a sort of major energy power. And that's shifting as well. One of the things that came up early in the Obama administration is what to do about the Nord Stream uh, 2 pipeline. Uh, And surprising to some people, not to me, but to some people, uh, uh, Biden sort of said, no, we're going to, we're, you know, let that be. I I think because it was sort of done and there wasn't much he could do about it. Do you see that as as a lever that Russia has over Europe, or as you describe it in the book, is Europe's sort of energy mix so diversified that the, 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 the leverage of Nord Stream is overstated? Yeah, it is so interesting. After all the controversy about Nord Stream, uh, Biden just kind of finally dropped it as, with a comment as he walked to a helicopter. I mean, it's over. And you know what matters more is relationship with Germany. Uh, rather than trying to stop a pipeline that's three weeks away from being finished. And by the way, it's now line one is finished. Uh, I think here's an example where maps matter, because of course it was the pipelines showing the amount of Russian gas going to Europe, about 35% of Europe's gas, about 10% of its total energy. But what's changed is that the Europeans changed the map of their pipeline system, made it very flexible, So and turned it into a commodity market. So gas can flow in all these different directions. Ukraine today doesn't import oil uh, gas directly from Russia. It imports it from Slovakia. Uh, It's Russian gas that comes through Germany into the European system. The other big change, result of shale, but also result of gutter and other countries is the rise of this huge global LNG business, a commodity business, so that buyers in Europe have choices. There isn't the leverage that would come from uh, having basically a really major single supplier who can call the shots. It's a competitive market now, and it's a kind of about price. And if the Russians were going to say, we're gonna cut the gas, uh, there are more than enough ships that would be immediately uh, change course and would be headed to Europe. What do you see as the, the next waves of technological changes likely to change the map? One of the things the book talks about is uh, climate change, new climate technologies, um, some of which have been around a long time, many of which we've been wrong in our projections of how quickly they will come on stream. What's what's the next set of big disruptions you expect? Well, I think, um, of course, these things often come as surprises. I mean, we had a shale revolution. We've also had a solar revolution that the cost of solar have come down so dramatically in large part because of Chinese scale manufacturing and uh, their ability to export and dominate the global market. Um, I would say, of course, um, so you always have to be prepared to be surprised, but uh, 
you know, I would put um, small scale nuclear on that list. I think a huge, you're going to see in the next few years, a huge focus on hydrogen uh, as a replacement for natural gas under pressure from governments, particularly in Europe, where the, some of the EU uh, projections have hydrogen fulfilling 25% of energy uh, by 2050. But of course, um, it uh, you need a market for it. And that's what kind of people question. And it's pretty capital intensive. And you need breakthroughs there. I think the other thing is really important. You don't, I don't see how the numbers work without really carbon capture on a large scale. I mean, you know, probably in 2050, we, in our co company, we have 300 people work on automobile research, market research. And, you know, our base scenario is that half the cars in the world in 2050 will still run on gasoline. They'll be efficient, but they'll run on gasoline. So oil and gas uh, will be important. There are all the other uses for it that people don't think about, like Tylenol is an oil product, et cetera. So in order to, and hospital room is largely plastic in its tools and so forth. So I think that you're gonna need carbon capture on a scale. And I don't think that code has really been cracked yet. Yeah, so kind of just as a sidebar, um, I, in the course of work that I, my little consulting company did a, a few years ago, 10 maybe, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, for a large auto manufacturer, they were looking at different sources of fuel and talking about, you know, is it going to be hydrogen? Is it going to be electric? What's going to, you know, what's going to change the picture? Um, and, and in none of those discussions was the fact that cars would be surrounded by sensors and able to drive themselves and therefore they wouldn't be crashing into each other as often and therefore they could be made out of lighter materials and therefore they could be more efficient. And, and you know, you sort of, there, there are paradigm shifts that occur kind yeah. of off the focus of the discussion. Yeah, and I, you know, in the book, I, this, I have a section called Roadmap to the Future in the, in the new map and, and, and basically came up with this phrase, autotech, which is not a place to take your car to get repaired, but the notion, the merger exactly, if you say, of tech with the automobile industry, could you take electric cars? And you, you know, David, I think you're making a point that often it's a convergence of technologies that change things. So you have an electric car, uh, you have uh, uh, ride hailing, and you have self-driving cars, which is probably the hardest thing to do. You put those together, and instead of the kind of auto industry we all have now, where many people have their own personal cars, cars become a utility and they're owned by uh, big fleet operators who, when you need a car, uh, it comes to you and people don't have the same identity that they had with a car. I think uh, the line I use is that uh, America's love affair with the car turns into more of a hookup. You know, when you need it, you need it. And when you don't need it, you don't need it. So uh, I think uh, that's a change. And, you know, you talk about the accidents of history I mean, the shale revolution, would it have happened if a guy hadn't gone to a baseball game in Dallas in 1998 and talked to somebody who had a funny idea of how to deal with production? And uh, if um, J.B. Straubel, this young energy technologist who was really excited about electricity, hadn't gone to a fish restaurant in Los Angeles with uh, Elon Musk in 2003, 
trying to sell him on the idea of an electric airplane. And Musk says, I'm not interested in that. But what about an electric car? I might be interested. And, you know, just a few years ago, Musk said that, you know, if that lunch hadn't taken place, there might not be a Tesla and we might not be talking about electric cars. So it's just, uh, you know, what history turns on. Yeah, well, you know, exactly. Now, you know, there is this kind of ominous uh, part of your uh, subtitle, which talks about the clash of nations. Um, And we've talked about some areas where uh, new energy technologies have reduced the potential, you know, involvement of, of countries in clashes, the United States sort of pulling back a little bit from the Middle East is a striking example of that. Um, but when you look at the flashpoints of the world, despite all of this change, they tend to, or many of them tend to have a kind of a, uh, an energy subtext. One that we talk a lot about is the South China Sea and the sea lanes um, that deliver oil both to China, to China and to Japan. Uh, you talk about it also in the book. Do you rate that as, you know, near the top of the list of potential flashpoints? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, it is, again, I got really interested in how, how did the South China Sea and the Nine Dash Line come about and went into the French archives and found the records of the voyage that a captain made in uh, 1933. And... Uh, for the French Indochina empire put flags on nine islands in the Paracels and uh, word got to Beijing and a geographer drew a map. And that map that he drew in 1936 was, became the nine dash line, which was adopted by the nationalists and then by the communists. And today, uh, you know, this is where US and Chinese naval ships come very close to collisions. So uh, I think it's, um, and you know, it's about energy, it's about security. Um, uh, because as you say, for China, I mean, at least the view that I take in the book is, and based upon our geologists and other geologists, is while there are oil and gas resources under those waters, they're not world-class that would change things. What is world-class is the amount of oil and gas that transits through that waters. And China's concern, they call it the Malacca Dilemma, is that the U.S. would somehow interdict it if there's a clash over Taiwan, and some would say that's heated up again. Um, and uh, so they've turned uh, these islands into sort of stationary uh, aircraft carriers, and, uh, and the rest of the world doesn't really recognize their sovereignty, and they insist that it's sovereignty, and they invoke history, and we invoke law of the sea, although we are not a signatory to the law of the sea. And, um, so uh, I put that there. And then the other one, of course, which is more diffuse is the Belt and Road. And it was interesting going to your interest in maps is that um, it was actually not easy to draw a map of the Belt and Road because it turned out to be about six different maps. But that has a strong energy component too. And the US has launched this development finance corporation with $60 billion of capitalization, basically to compete uh, with China's Belt and Road. Well, yeah, I, I would say the Belt and Road is is a is 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 a seen as a solution to the same problem, right? There, what China is trying to do is open up supply lines for all the resources they need, of which energy is atop the list, and for their commerce. Uh, 
and it extends to railways across the Eurasian uh, uh, continent to, to, to sea lanes, but it's about a country that's, despite all of its growth, is, is, is very dependent on the rest of the world. Something yeah. that I don't think people understand fully about China. Yeah, I mean, exactly. That's such a difference from the Soviet Union again, because China is so interdependent. And of course, the rest of the world, as it's dependent on the US, is also dependent upon China. What I hear from leaders in Asia, Southeast Asia, and Middle East, and Latin America is, we don't want to have to choose between the United States and China, because China happens to be a really important market. But here, um, David, is where there's a kind of new geopolitics of energy because of China's dominance of the supply chains for the net zero carbon economy, whether it's lithium batteries or whatever. And so I think, you know, I say there's going to be a convergence of geopolitics and these new supply chains. And we hear it instead of energy security, we hear battery security. And I think instead of uh, big oil, we're going to hear about big shovels because it's going to involve the wind and the sun may be free, but it's going to involve a lot of mining. Yeah, rare earth is, yeah. is an area where the Chinese have a lot. Uh, we only have a couple minutes left, and I don't want to uh, uh, miss the, the opportunity to talk a little bit about, about climate, which figures prominently in the book. Um, but it links to this because, you know, we talk about conflicts related to energy, flashpoints related to energy shifting geopolitics related to energy, all those things can be said about climate as well, whether it's shifting geopolitics because of needing rare earth metals or shifting geopolitics because the shrinking ice caps and the new sea lanes that are opening up or desire to get you know, into the mineral resources of the Arctic or um, uh, uh, refugee flows because coastal regions are are, are increasingly under siege. How, you know, can you foresee a future in which climate-driven geopolitics uh, is equivalent to or supplants energy-driven geopolitics? Well, I can see it in terms of a couple of things. One, it goes back to the mineral and the supply chains that are required for it. Secondly, is the scale and the timing but thirdly, I think there's a potential for a new north-south divide. I did a dialogue the other day with the vice president of Nigeria, and he was just really strong criticizing Western institutions that won't fund natural gas pipelines, which he says we need to get hundreds of millions of people to be less poor and improve their health. I hear the same thing. I'm on the energy think tank for India, and I hear the same thing from the Indians that they want to develop a natural gas system. They want to get propane to people so they stop burning wood in their, in their villages and so forth. And so we may see when we get to Glasgow, uh, which is the UN conference coming up in, in the autumn, uh, in November, we may see the makings of a new North-South because those nations don't have the wealth and the flexibility and the choices that Western Europe and the United States and Canada have. And so you know, maybe there's, we're going to see uh, uh, an emergence of a new kind of geopolitics. Um, and uh, do you foresee climate crises as a driver of these things? Yeah, we just did a scenario uh, about, uh, you know, climate crises as being the triggering 
point in one of our scenarios uh, where it does drive policy, does change policy. Um, you know, what they're taught, what's being talked, you know, energy, we're now in the 312th year, David, of the energy transition, which goes back to January 1709. But normally the energy transition take a century or more. We're trying to do it in 28 years and get halfway there in eight and a half years. Um, that's pretty challenging. And uh, at the scale, you know, when you just think about the enormity of it and, uh, and uh, what has to happen, you know, there's where you need some new miracle technologies. Do you, are you optimistic about the new miracle technologies? Well, I, you know, I think kind of wearing my economic historian hat, it's pretty amazing what's happened in a couple of centuries in current terms of innovation and how it solves problems. And one of the basic rules that I have is, you know, innovation arises from needs and the needs are there. So, uh, and it may come like some of the other things from left field from something that we don't see right now, like shale, like, uh, solar revolution like the electric car well those are certainly areas we will we will be looking uh at and i suspect uh if the uh the years ahead or anything like the last three decades people will be looking to you for your analysis of them um i kind of as i read through the book i was kind of guessing which of those moments were you in the first person like that inter interaction uh with with putin because i don't know anybody whose opinion on these things i i I uh, give more weight, um, but I'll tell you something just to, or not tell you, but tell the listeners something. Um, this book, like the other books, is a brilliantly written book. It is uh, compelling. It is full of human stories. It is not, you know, sort of a, 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 a dull academic analytical tome. All of your books, you know, and two of which I, at least I know have been made into a television series. All of your books um, are great reading, great stories. And given the centrality of the stories in this book, uh, they're really worth spending time. So I recommend that everybody go uh, get their copy of The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations by Daniel uh, Jurgen. And I hope sometime Dan will invite you back, not to talk about the book, but just um, uh, you know, what's going on in the world because uh, we just skimmed the surface here and I'm always interested in your points of view. Well, thank you, David. It's great to have this conversation today and thank you for the, those nice words. I appreciate it. Great book and, and folks, if you go and, uh, you know, Google the response the book has gotten, it's, it's been deservedly uh, acclaim rich. So Thanks, Dan. Thanks to everybody for listening. For more on what we've got coming up, go to the dsrnetwork.com and uh, you can see what's coming up on each of our podcasts and uh, more conversations like this with other great authors of great books. Uh, in the meantime, stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye. Um,